is our American story, and you've heard us talk a lot about Hillsdale College on this show. And right now we have three of their students serving as interns here. And we've been sending them all over the country, having them interview people and hear their stories. We sent them to Washington, D.C. for Memorial Day, where they talked with veterans and civilians alike about what Memorial Day means to them. Hello, I'm Shadrach Straley. I'm Colby Conger. And I'm Martin Peterson. The three of us go to school at Hillsdale College and work for Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, our school station. When we heard we would be interning at Our American Stories, we imagined grunt work, photocopying, and countless cups of coffee. When we finally arrived to the studio in Oxford, we prepared ourselves, you know, to sit down, plot away on work for just a couple of weeks. But boy, were we surprised when Lee told us to pack up and hit the road right away. What followed was a week-long road trip totaling 3,000 miles and taking us all over the southeastern United States. We interviewed business owners, coal miners, and everything in between. So much for making Lee a cup of coffee. The week ended on Memorial Day when we arrived in Washington, D.C. Our nation's capital was abuzz with activity. Men and women from all over the world crowded the streets, taking in the sights and sounds, and although there were food trucks and ice cream stands as far as the eye could see, we came to D.C. with a purpose. The night before Memorial Day, we attended a dinner in celebration of veterans. The dinner was small, with only two big tables and a handful of people, and everyone there had been through so much and lived full and fruitful lives, and here we were, three college students, doing their best to stay afloat. And it was a big surprise to me that all the veterans in attendance leaped at the opportunity to tell their stories with us. One such man was Steve Ritchie, who served in Vietnam as a pilot for the Air Force and flew 339 missions. He shot down five enemy airplanes, becoming an ace, and one of the five Americans to do so during the Vietnam War. Steve told us about his journey becoming a pilot, starting with his father. He was in Patton's Third Army in Europe in World War II. And he, in the GI Bill, when he came home, he took flying lessons. And he soloed. And he took me for a ride one time. And then he couldn't afford to fly anymore. So I got one flight in an airplane. But I wasn't hooked. I wasn't turned on. I built some couple of model airplanes. Uh, one was a B-29 bomber. Uh, but I was very excited about the Air Force Academy. It was brand new. And so I went. The other thing I remember is a, is a kid in that little town on Main Street um, looking up occasionally and seeing a, an airliner flying over and going to Greensboro. And I, I remember thinking as a little boy, I said, someday... I'll be in an airplane, and I'll go all over the world. And I now have over five and a half million miles of travel, been to 43 countries and all 50 states around the world. He then told us that being a fighter pilot was far from the glamour of the Hollywood ace. You know, having survived 339 missions, there were so many, many things, so many moving parts. So many things that had to go right. So many things that could have gone wrong. The fact that I'm here talking to you is probably one in 10,000 chance. Uh, so I'm incredibly fortunate and blessed. And, you know, fighter pilots have the reputation of being cocky. And we are until we spend a lot of time flying combat and a lot of our f- friends are killed. And that's a very sobering, humbling experience. My best friend... Um, was a young man named Woody Parker, whose dad was a colonel on active duty. He was two years behind me. He was at the Citadel. 
I was class of 64 at the Air Force Academy, and he was 66 at the Citadel. We were teamed, just by a matter of chance, in the Air Force Phantom. And then as a first lieutenant, I got an assignment to Vietnam in the F-4, was paired with Woody in the back seat. On his 10th mission, he was flying with someone else. He should have been with me. It was a scheduling mistake, and he went into the ground in North Vietnam at night, was missing for 30 years. And 30 years later, some of our teams that are searching right now all over the world for remains of missing service people found remains at the crash site, We did two different DNAs and identified his remains, and um, his mom and dad asked me to go to Hawaii where they process all the remains from that part of the world and escort his remains to Arlington. They continued to promote him while he was missing, and once he was, uh, you know, once we found his remains, he was a major by that time. So I still wear this today in honor of Uh, my best friend. Steve finished by reflecting on Memorial Day. I know a couple hundred thousand people come out for the parade and and that's heartwarming. Uh, But I'm not sure how many people in our country really understand the sacrifice that, that so many have made. But you know, I go to the wall and I find Woody's name and others, classmates of mine. They're about, um, they're about, 15 or 16 of my classmates that were killed, a dozen that were POWs, um, and others that were killed in training, that sort of thing. So one of the things that, that bothers people like me is that, you know, why did I make it and they didn't? Why did I make it and Woody didn't make it? I mean, it wasn't his fault that he went, that he was killed. And, of course, I had this incredible good fortune. There were so many times when I should have been killed and I wasn't, when I should have been shot down and I wasn't. And it was so close. I mean, it was just so close. And there's so many things that have to fall into place. The timing has to be so perfect. And so that's something that those of us who <clears throat> make it through combat struggle with, that uh, when there were so many... They were in the very same situation, and yet they didn't make it, and we did make it. So whatever we can do to say thank you to them and whatever we can do to honor those who have uh, fallen in their families, then it's special. It means a lot. As that dinner drew to a close, we started to understand the importance of days like Memorial Day. And more from our Hillsdale interns. After these messages, Steve lost 15 to 16 classmates in Vietnam, 12 POWs, and of course, his best friend, Woody. This is our American stories, soldiers' stories, our interns' stories, Memorial Day stories, after these messages.
This is Our American Stories. Welcome back to our Hillsdale Interns' first road trip for Our American Stories. And we love to send young people in contact with old people. We had Faith, who was our youngest full-timer here, 21 years old. She was wondering what her first assignment would be. We sent her to the villages, to the villages in Florida, America's largest retirement community. And she's done just terrific field work. Let's go back now to our interns as they visit the Vietnam War Memorial, a beautiful piece of, I consider, sculpture by Maya Lin, dedicated in 1982, and their interviews with a handful of Vietnam veterans. Our first Memorial Day stop was the Vietnam Wall. The Stark Memorial sits nestled into a green and groomed hillside, and despite the shining sun and singing birds that day, the wall was a solemn place. The wall itself was surrounded by men and women who had made the pilgrimage to find their fallen brothers' names among the honored dead. And as we walked to the wall, we remembered the words of Paul Barry, an Air Force veteran and broadcaster who we had talked to the night before. He had this to say about Memorial Day. It is the day that we bring them back from wherever they are, to the places that they were born, to their mothers and fathers, to us. We bring them back to America because we remember them. We think about them. We think about the sacrifice they made. We think about their families. We think about the babies they lost. These were daddies and mommies, brothers and sisters. They don't come back, do they? But they can come back through us, through memory. And so we remember these people. We think about them. At the wall, we met a man on his way to pay respects. He didn't tell us his name, but he did tell us about his yearly tradition. Well, we, my wife and I come down every Memorial Day and uh, Veterans Day. Um, remember uh, friends and classmates that, that we've lost. Um, it's the very least that we can do to uh, keep their memory alive. It's a nice gathering for a number of us who, you know, we don't see each other maybe except for once a year, you know. So that's primarily why my wife and I come down. We then asked him how long he had been making the Memorial Day trip. Probably since the wall has been built. Um, Took me three times to finally get up to the wall, uh, my third trip, and then I just cried like a baby. And it's still still just very emotional. Mm -hmm. Was there anybody in particular you're remembering today or just... You know, everybody. Just everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, yeah, there are guys that uh, that I knew directly, um, but uh, you know, this this is a day for everybody whose names are on the wall there. Those words stuck with us as we continued our search. We met a man sitting on a secluded wooden bench all by himself, waiting for the Memorial Day ceremonies to begin. Uh, Larry Young, I was a Spec Five medic, combat medic in Vietnam, and uh, I'm here because I'm on the 25th Infantry Division Memorial Committee, which is used to be called the uh, Tropical Lightning or the Electric Strawberry. So I bring the wreath down every Memorial Day and Veterans Day, and, and it's usually presented during the official ceremony. So I come down to remember our fallen brothers uh, my unit in Vietnam was C Troop, Three Quarter Cav, 25th Infantry Division. I figured I'd enlist and try to pick a MOS that was, you know, I could 
to learn a skill and also maybe not have to go into combat. But come to find out, by becoming a combat medic, I was right in the middle of combat, probably one of the most dangerous jobs that you could have. We then asked Mr. Young who he was remembering this Memorial Day. I'm remembering Spec 4 Joe McCarthy. His sister contacted me. His sister Kathy contacted me recently. and uh, I don't know, he just brought, brought the battle back to mind that he was killed in. So I'm kind of focusing on, you know, on him and his family, the sacrifice they made. Interesting thing is, we don't, the combat soldier is not that interested in politics. I mean, when you're put in that life and death situation, you're just interesting, interested in surviving and, and your unit, unit surviving and your brother surviving, your combat brother surviving. Uh, the politics at home, we really didn't pay attention to because we didn't have the luxury <laughs> of you know, being political. We were just trying to survive. Across from the Vietnam Wall stands a statue known simply as the Three Soldiers. The statue depicts three men equipped for jungle combat. They stand still, staring to the wall and to their fallen brothers. There we found a single man standing in front of the statue and staring himself. My, uh, my name is retired Chief Master Sergeant Fred Loney. And I, my home is Sheltonham, Maryland. And, uh, and the reason I'm here today is because of the 58,000 plus back there that couldn't be here. A lot of them are real good friends of mine, just like family. And uh, being that I live 30 miles from here, I have no reason not to be here. Even though I'm sick, I'm, you know, I've got stage four prostate cancer. But I'm, uh, I still, it's my duty to be here. I had three tours in Vietnam, one 64, 65, went back in 66, all of 66, and 68. My job was a, uh, I work on the gunships. For him, enlistment was a difficult choice. I was born in South Carolina, and, uh, the reason I enlisted that there was no jobs or anything like that. I uh, didn't have a hell of a lot of choice, you know. Uh, my father asked me did I want to go to college. I didn't have the heart to tell him I wanted to go to college because he was making one dollar an hour. I knew if I'd have told him I wanted to go, he would have made away. So I wouldn't want to put that pressure on my family. Mr. Loney hoped to remember two men who were very close to him. One young man named Ben White, he was out of something, South Carolina. And another gentleman named is John Cosgrave. Uh, John Cosgrave, uh, I was his, I was his uh, sergeant. And uh, the gentleman who replaced me made a critical error. We had to go down after midnight to pick up the flying order for the next morning. But I told him to always send the guys in there early. Don't send them in after midnight. He sent them in at 2 o'clock in the morning. And as soon as they walk out of the command bunker, bunker there's a 122 mortar round. Fell right in front of them and killed both of them. I was angry a lot of years about that. And I had good reason to be. And those were the main people. Uh, you know, there was other... You know, people that I was familiar with, but 
Uh, one is a friend and the other one, like I say, I was angry because that happened to him. After the interview, Mr. Loney asked us to take his picture in front of the statue. He took his place, smiled, and stood next to those three venerable soldiers. He fit right in. Later in the day, we met a man named Tony Pastelli. He walked with a cane, stood about 5'3", and worked as one of the famous tunnel rats during the Tet Offensive. During the war, the North Vietnamese dug networks of tunnels for supplies and transportation, and American soldiers crawled through those tunnels with nothing but their weapon and their wits. And when you're a tunnel rat, you know, you're in there by yourself a good amount of the time. You know, and, you know, people say, well, you know, you had a fort. No. When I was in the tunnels, if I was going, everybody was going, and that's the way that I looked at it. When you're down there, you can smell everything. You can hear everything. You don't need a flashlight or anything else. You need your hands and your senses. Because if you have a flashlight, they're going to get you. They're going to get you. So uh, I went into a lot of rough situations. I seen a lot. I did a lot. And, you know, and I thank God that, you know, I am back here. And I fought for my country. I did my job. They asked me to go. I went. He told us who he hoped to remember and left us with an earnest plea. I want to celebrate my, my best friend, Jim Stites, who died on his 21st birthday. You know, the day before his birthday, I went down to the wall and saw him again today. It took me all these years to get down there and see them, you know, see his name. And, and to do that, you know, that, all, that just tore me to pieces because it brought back all the memories all over again. Everything just came pouring right back, but it made me feel good. The respect that I have for him and all the other fallen soldiers, you know, and that's my right. That's what I'm here for, to say they died. And don't forget their face and don't forget their name. Just don't forget us. That's all we ask for. And so we packed up and left the Vietnam Memorial, hoping to never forget the faces and the names of that day. And when we come back, more on this remarkable field trip by the Hillsdale students that work with us each summer. And thanks to Hillsdale for lending your best and brightest to us. And thank you for all who served and are honoring fallen ones on Memorial Day, this past Memorial Day. More of our American stories after these messages. This is Our American Stories, our young students honoring our older veterans and those who've fallen. We were just talking during the break, and one of our interns had noticed Fred Loney sitting alone, tear in his eye near the memorial, near the Vietnam Wall. And again, stage four prostate cancer, still going there, 20 plus years, a retired master sergeant, Sergeant Fred Loney. No jobs in South Carolina, he said. Didn't want to be a burden to his dad. Multiple tours in Vietnam. And again, the loss and the respect. Let's go back now, this time with our interns, to the World War II Memorial. (laughs) 
The World War II Memorial was next on our list, and as we left the Vietnam Wall, it rose into sight. Where the Vietnam Memorial sits stark and personal, the World War II Memorial stands in a grand fashion. We were lucky enough to reach the monument moments after the World War II Memorial Day ceremony had concluded, with many of the veterans staying behind to take pictures and talk with interested civilians. We took this opportunity to interview a few of them. First was retired Army Sergeant Harry Miller. We saw Mr. Miller standing in the crowd with his hands in his pockets and wearing his old uniform proudly. We discovered a man who was enthusiastic to share his story, particularly one involving a stolen German Tiger tank. Well, our outfit captured the only intact German Tiger tank and brought it back to the States. The fellow that actually captured it was a friend of mine. And uh, what happened was uh, when he caught the tank while he was going down a fire break and he came face to face with this Tiger Royal. Generally, that's the last thing you see if he's come face to face with a Tiger Royal. So what happened was he stopped and he was wondering why nobody was taking any action. So he fired, a, he thought maybe the crew was asleep inside the tank. So he fired a star shell above the tank and it lit it up. And when he did that, why the German crew jumped out of the tank. I guess they thought he was, they were on fire. So he was up in the turret and he fired and he killed uh, three of them, wounded one and none of them got away. So anyway, he radioed back to our battalion commander and he said, I captured this Tiger Royal and he says, I'm gonna, and the, and the colonel told him, he says, I'll get out of that damn thing before some Ger- uh, American comes along and, and blows you out. So he said, no, I'm gonna take this damn thing all the way to Berlin. He says, no, get out of there. And he said, no, I'm gonna take it all the way to Berlin. So he drove it for a while, couldn't find any good targets. So he, uh, he uh, abandoned it when he ran out of fuel. So he radioed back to the battalion commander and told him where it was. It was right near a little town of Coo, Belgium, C-O-O. And uh, so he said, okay, well, I'll get an ordinance to bring it back tomorrow. So he got a hold of the First Army headquarters and told them they had this captured tank. And they said, we'll, we'll send up some ordnance unit and uh, have them bring it back, take it to the port, bring it back to the States. Then they took it back to uh, the Spa Belgium Railroad Station. And uh, the next, then everybody went out to take pictures of it and everything. Of course, then the next day, this well, this ordnance unit put their marking on the turret showing a 234th, I think it was, uh, Ordnance Evacuation Company. We didn't like that because our unit captured it. So it went all the way back to uh, uh, the Aberdeen Proving Ground up in Pennsylvania, and uh, they kept it on there until they examined it and they found out what it would do and what it wouldn't do. So finally, about 30 years later, they sent that tank to Fort Knox. Well, we got to, I went to Fort Knox, and what they did, they had cleaned it all up, made it almost like brand new. They sliced off the side so that you could see inside the tank. Well, I looked at the little tag that they had there in front of the tank, and it said that it was captured by this ordnance unit. So that burnt me up, so I chased over to the uh, office of the curator of the museum. I told him, I said, hey, that's a mistake. That ordnance unit didn't capture that tank. 
my outfit capture. I said, I've got, I can prove it to you. I said, I can get you an affidavit. Of, we still had about 300 guys in the outfit. And uh, he said, no, that won't be necessary. He said, but if you know the guy that captured it, I'll get a tape and, and, uh, and if I believe it, I'll, I'll change that. So when I went home, I called him up, told him about this tank sitting there with the wrong identification on it. And he says, no, he said, I captured that scene. He said, I want the credit for it. I said, I do too. So I took, took the tape and sent it back to the curator of the museum. And the next time I went back, he had changed it. He said it was captured by the 740th Tank Battalion. Following this story, we chatted with Mr. Miller about his 22 years of service and why he decided to enlist. Everybody was patriotic. Everybody was patriotic during World War II. Uh, my mother was, had died when I was three. My dad died when I was 12. I really felt that I always wanted to be in the Army, and I, I just thought that was the time to do it. I almost went to Canada to join the armed forces up there, but my sister talked me out of that. So as soon as I got the chance, I went in the American Army. He told us he was only 16 years old when he enlisted. Now, how was that possible? Well, I had to lie about my age. Yeah, yeah, sure. I had to, had to work at it. Fortunately, they never asked me for a birth certificate. Because I say fortunately because... I didn't have one until about 20 years ago I went to get a, uh, a passport. We also talked to Frank Cohn, a soldier who stood out in his unit because of his ability to speak German. Uh, I was drafted when I lived in New York. And uh, I, was, uh, I was 18 in August of 1943 and drafted in September of 1943. So that went rather fast. And then I got over into England in uh, September 44 and ended up in Belgium for the uh, Battle of the Bulge. And then we went into the Rhineland campaigns and then the Army of Occupation. Um, I was involved in intelligence work. I spoke German and uh, that made a difference. Frank's German speaking landed him on one of his most memorable journeys. But... It wasn't to speak German. We met the Russians at the Elbe, and uh, my captain wanted an interpreter, and he couldn't find anybody who spoke Russian, so he took me. So we went across and we saw the, the Soviets, and very few Americans went across because uh, Eisenhower said the Elbe was not to be crossed. Uh, but he had a map that showed the uh, occupation zones, and the occupation zone went over on our side. But he, I guess his mission was to tell him to wait for six months before we turned back, before he should come over. When we came over, we were celebrated like we were the two who won the war. And the reason for that, it took me a long time to figure it out. We didn't really have to fight all the way to the Alba. The, the war was over for us a couple of weeks before. The Germans were giving up right and left. But the uh, Russians had to fight all the way up to the Alba. So when they saw us, they realized that there were no more Germans in between, and they survived the war. That's why they were celebrating us. And on Memorial Day, Frank tried not to remember the bad things, but rather the memories that would put a smile on his face. The miserable times, you try to get that out of your mind. Uh, you, you look at the things that somehow became humorous after a while, you know. 
they probably they weren't funny at the time, but uh, like uh, going across, I was trying to get out of it because I knew I didn't speak Russian, and here I was making history going across. Didn't realize that. And yet here we were, standing in a group of men who had all made history in their own way. And when we come back, one final segment, the first road trip of our Hillsdale interns. We sent him to Washington, D.C. for Memorial Day and interviewed, well, anyone they thought was worth interviewing. And my goodness, have we found some folks worth hearing from. More after these messages, the stories of fallen soldiers and the people who care about them here on Our American Stories. Welcome back to Our American Stories, our final segment with our Hillsdale interns. And Hillsdale College is the finest place in America to study all the things that are beautiful and matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. Their terrific online courses are available for free at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And we return to Washington, D.C., And the guys are interviewing a World War II vet here in this segment, a military wife, and an active duty serviceman. As we continued to circle around the World War II memorial, we were struck by the enormity of it. Showing the sheer scale of the war, huge pillars surround the memorial. Each one of these pillars represents the states and territories that sent men and women to the field, and two separate pavilions set on opposite sides of a large center fountain, representing the two major theaters of the war and paying homage to individual battles and events. You can't help but feel small walking on those stone steps. We talked with a man named Ed Desmond, who told us about his time in the Navy from his wheelchair. Ed Desmond, I'm from World War II. And I was on a LCS uh, number 128. There were gunboats in the Pacific, and uh, there was 130 of them. So they didn't have names, they had numbers. And we sailed, uh, I got my ship in Boston, we sailed down the coast. We could only stay out for 30 days because of drinking water. You know, you got to have water to live. So we went down the coast, up to um, Little Creek, Virginia, and ports uh, New York, of course, and Key West, Florida, Charleston, South Carolina. Then went down to the canal, went over to San Diego, stayed there for about a week, refueled, and blah, 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 blah. Then we went to uh, sail from there to Hawaii, and uh, from there we went to Inuitok, Guam, Saipan, all of those, maybe not in that uh, succession, but uh, and then we went down to uh, uh, Okinawa, and we did picket duty for the destroyers and battleships. And basically, if they had to get to the battleships, they had to go to our firepower first. And uh, so we wound up down in Philippines, ready for the invasion of Japan. And it was the most dramatic scene I have ever seen. 
There were so many ships, you couldn't count them and you couldn't see the end of them. And when the, and the war ended and all the guns fired up and we had to go below deck because the shrapnel was coming down on top of us. We asked Ed what life was like as a veteran and he told us a story about a yearly reunion he attends with his former shipmates. On these 130 ships, right, we have a reunion every year in a different city in the United States. And last year we were in Sacramento, California, and there were only 12 of us left out of over 10,000. I mean, don't forget, you know, their wives and everybody else, they can't maneuver around, and, you know, age takes its toll on uh, movements. So we... uh, we went out there and we we were heroes, you might say, you know, in the uh, because there was only 12 of us. But hey, and I was a youngster and I'm 92. So, you know, most of the others are long gone. They're planted. It's estimated that by 2036, there will be no living World War II veterans. And having the opportunity to talk with even a handful of them was certainly an honor. Mr. Desmond's story was a painful reminder of those statistics. At this point, many of the veterans had left, and others were getting ready to leave. We got our stuff together and decided that we, too, had to move on. After our time at the World War II Memorial, we attended the yearly Memorial Day Parade. The streets were jam-packed, so we took that opportunity to talk with some of the parade-goers. And as we rounded a corner, we noticed a large group of Girl Scouts wearing matching hot pink shirts. Their scout leader was more than happy to talk to us about why they were there. We're part of the Tall Pine Service Unit out of Jackson, Mississippi with the Girl Scouts. And this was our trip that our council chose for the year. And so our girls, they um, you could pay money to attend. And then also the cookies that you sold, all of the cookie money that you earned was put towards the trip. So we've got 82 people here. We've got um, nine different councils represented. We've got girls from the age of 17 down to 7. And we um, have a whirlwind week here in the capital. And we're, we're here Monday through Friday doing uh, everything. Memorials, parades, there's a ghost tour I think some are doing tonight, Pentagon Memorial, anything and everything about American history. We're trying to cram into one week and show these girls our history. When we asked if she had a personal connection to Memorial Day, she gave a rather unexpected answer. My husband actually just deployed two weeks ago, and so um, it's very important to my daughter and I and to all of her friends that actually our troop every year you get to donate cookies. Whenever you buy cookies, you can also donate them. And our troop chose to donate all the cookies to my husband's unit. They just deployed, and so all the guys who went got a box of cookies and, I don't know, something small, but it made them really happy. Um, but yeah, all the guys I'm seeing here in uniform are making me just a little sad, but very, very grateful, very thankful. It's something that I never thought I would experience. He only joined the Army about four years ago to fly helicopters, and it drastically changed our lives for the better, and it makes you appreciate things in a whole new light. Um, not being a part of the military, you you appreciate things and you see a soldier and you think, you know, thank you. And then being a part of it, it's just a whole new respect. And, you know, the ones that are currently in, the ones that have retired, all of them, they at one point or another said, you know what, I will die for you. 
I don't care if I know you, if I don't know you, if I like you, if I don't, I will do that. And that just, that's awesome. She then elaborated on her husband joining the Army. He had a friend that told him if he joined the National Guard, he could fly helicopters. And so he joined, and then he came home and told me. And so he came home and said, hey, I joined the Army today, and I, sh- and I go to basic in two weeks. And uh, our daughter was two, and he nearly didn't survive the night, but he did. And then he left, and here we are. She concluded by talking about what it feels like to be in Washington, D.C. on Memorial Day. Whenever this trip came up, I really wanted to come. I've never been to D.C. before. My daughter hasn't. A lot of the girls in our service unit haven't ever been here before. So just to see their faces as they see not only the monuments and all of the the buildings here, but the history. And then you're right, seeing all the people here for the parade and just all of the, I don't know, the patriotism. I mean, I guess... It feels kind of funny to say that and be like, you know, the patriotism and you want to like make an arm gesture, but like, yeah, that's what you feel. And so we were, we're really glad to be here. We then talked with an active duty serviceman, Gary Merritt. Gary made the trip to Washington, D.C. to pay his respects. I come here basically uh, to remember everybody, plus to my father, who I lost four years ago uh, from Agent Orange from Vietnam. So it's just so humbling that my, my, but my pal, second year riding in the Rolling Thunder, yeah, that we started. So we come down here every every Memorial Day now for Rolling Thunder. Yes, I did want to serve, but I, he was Navy and I joined the Army first with the 82nd Airborne, and I went to um, Grenada, and then I had an eight-year break. But then I came back in and uh, still serving now. I'm still active to do the Air Force right now. Uh, I'm up at West uh, in Chevy Mass. I'm a Security Forces. And uh, I've got two more years to retire, and then I retire. And what were his fondest memories? I would say it's uh, the camaraderie of the, the trip, that my friends and the people I met. You know, it's like I still have friendships from 20 years ago, before when I first joined, thanks to Facebook. <laughs> you know, you know, you, you can get in contact with people and all that, and you, you never lose that brotherhood, you know, or brother and sisterhood now. You know, and it's it's amazing that. You can go to another veteran and they know where you've been and what you're feeling, you know. And uh, right now, I'm advocating for we're advocating for. I work for the vets. I donate my time for the vet center and DAV. And there's so many of these people that do not get the benefits that they should deserve, and we're trying to fight to give them the education and all that to get it. So that's my my main goal. Gary believes Americans can learn a lot from an old John F. Kennedy quote. The mentality of the Americans have to change again to feeling proud for their country. That, that's got to be the, the, the mental thinking. What can I do for my country? Not what my country can do for me. It's just sad that we've fallen into a what can I get from it and not give anything in return. That's what I feel. And with that, we packed into our minivan and headed home. The day had been a little overwhelming, meeting so many people who served and the loved ones who saw them go. Of everything we heard that day, though, one thing really stuck with us. That's my right. That's what I'm here for, to say they died. And don't forget their face and don't forget their name. Just don't forget us. That's all we ask about. So, we ask you to do the same. Never forget. And great job, Martin, Shadrach, and Colby. 
And thank you, Hillsdale, for lending your best to us. And we won't forget, not here on Our American Stories, not just every year around Memorial Day, all year long we honor our soldiers. Because you have to, folks. 2036, imagine that. No living World War II veterans. One of our projects this coming year is to talk to as many living World War II members as possible. If you know any, if you have any, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Any loved ones who were alive and served in that great war, let us know. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, Soldiers' Stories. And I love that mom, that military wife mom. What a lady. What a family. This is Our American Stories, and on this show we don't talk politics, we tell stories. Stories about love, hard work, redemption, and faith. And our first story of Amazing Grace, a segment we'll do every week, follows Chip Hunt. Mr. Hunt's addiction to drugs and alcohol took control of his life and stripped away everything he'd worked for until one day when a powerful moment of surrender to the Lord renewed his life. I'm Chip Hunt. I design and build homes. One of the things I know for sure is that God called me to build. Building is kind of my ministry. My father was a, had a genius IQ, but he was an alcoholic, and he was an abusive alcoholic. And uh, he died at 43 in a car wreck because of alcoholism. And uh, my mother then uh, married another alcoholic. And I swore from those two experiences um, that I would never drink, but, but I did all through, um, through college and, and high school and, and in my early working career. I didn't drink that much, but um, drinking was, was just a, a good time that got away from me. I was slowly creeping into alcoholism then. I, I got saved on May 18, 1981. I accepted Christ and my life changed immediately. was clean and sober, not drinking, but after a, a three-year period, by my own decision, I drank one beer or a beer and then it escalated from there. It wasn't like a, just overwhelming a, uh, alcoholism at that moment, but the one led to two, the two led to three all night, every night, and the, the only time I was really sober was just a few hours through the middle of the day. I had three beautiful sons. Uh, they, they never saw me sober during this time. My alcoholism increased to a point where uh, my wife finally had me committed to a, to a rehab. Through the rehabs they were putting me in, I would hear all these people telling war stories about cocaine and, and other drugs. So when I came out of one, I tried powder cocaine, but I could still function on that. But putting myself in bad places every night around that kind of people, I had crack cocaine put in front of me. And when I took a hit of crack cocaine, that was like every drug I'd ever taken, every high I'd ever had rolled into one three-minute high. It was a, a overwhelming, overpowering. Uh, it, it changed my, my thinking. It changed everything about me. You have a, a, a one-minute high, then you'll spend the next uh, 48 hours in this, this raging, craving monster inside of you saying, get more. Everything I had within six months was gone. Every My house, my cars, my business, everything went down the tubes so quickly. Being an addict is not like... Um, you can just say, well, your willpower, get clean on your willpower, because you can't, because it's like you have no hope. 
After swearing off drugs and dedicating himself to God, Chip began to see a gradual and distinct change in his life for the better. One day, I had a, a, a crack dealer with me that was supposedly helping me work. And I was driving down the road with that crack dealer in my truck and, um, and, and just so mentally low and just, just thinking, Lord, I would be sober if you just let me be the, the, the lowest person in your house. And, and at that point, I didn't audibly hear a voice, but God said, I, I will do that for you. I'll make you, I'll make you clean. And it, it was like he was standing there with his arms open behind me the whole time. He had never left me. But when, 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 when I came to myself, just like the prodigal son came to himself, when I, when I realized the sincerity of, of God and the sincerity of this prayer I was praying in that moment, God made me clean. I just pulled over. And I said, you got to get out. I just put him out on the side of the road, and I turned that truck around. And when I turned that, when I turned around, it was like a load was lifted off of me. I, it wasn't like a thousand green stars and, or some warm, fuzzy feeling, but I knew by faith God was going to heal me. And that, that day, I started, I committed myself, I committed my, my, my uh, rehabilitation to Him. And the next morning, I got up early, opened my Bible, said, God, keep me clean and sober this day. And His Word was just, was just jumping off the page and has been ever since. Just like the prodigal son who only wanted to work for his father. He only wanted to go back and have a job for his father. But there his father ran to him. God ran to me. He just would uh, told me every day that he loved me and that uh, um, he was just waiting for me to return to him. I had prayed so many emergency prayers before, but not as, uh, as humbling myself and confessing that that you're a Lord, you're God. Even though I had been saved in 1981, I had never been totally sold out, totally surrendered. Immediately, I was I was like a different person, and I went to to my my then wife and my children and and told them that I was sorry for for everything I'd done. I asked for their forgiveness. My boys, uh, as I mentioned earlier, had had never seen me sober, but, but he, he let them see me as a daddy. In that process, I lost everything. And I had well, a one-room cabin, and I, I, I couldn't even afford cable TV, so every night I'd come home, we'd play checkers every night. God used that time for my kids to get to know me. The finances got better, work got better. After that day, I can honestly say I never was tempted to, to do it again, never. When you call on God to and you confess that He is Lord and God and more powerful than, than any drug, than, than any sin, than any, anything that, that can destroy you or, or, or harm you. For, for me, the, the power of God was the only way. And, and I believe with, with all addicts that it takes God's power to break that, that addiction. One of the things that, that God has, has done in my life since then got me involved in mission work. I've been to uh, Honduras and Nicaragua over 30 times. I can't give him enough honor and glory for what he did then and what he's still doing in my life today. I'm clean and sober for 20 years now.
And that's Chip Hunt's story. Thank you to the folks at Pine Lake Church in Mississippi. We're looking for your amazing grace stories. Sometimes it'll include God, sometimes a family member, a friend, a total stranger. But once a week, we're going to bring you amazing grace stories because we all need more of it in our lives. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and leave your story. We'd love to share it with others. And this kind of confession, in the end, it brings everyone closer together. Thanks again, Chip. Your story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes from a former veteran of the National Hockey League, Sean Pronger. Sean's nine-year voyage and the stories behind it are chronicled in his well-received memoir entitled Journeyman, the many triumphs and even more numerous defeats of a guy who's seen just about everything in the game of hockey. An excerpt from Sean's book was posted by the sports website Deadspin, and it quickly went viral. It's titled... I was Wayne Gretzky's hungover linemate. An NHL journeyman picks the wrong night to drink. Let's take a listen to Sean's story. To the side of the net, Taylor to Gretzky, he scores! Wayne Gretzky is tied it and broken 40 house records. Double time with Gretzky trailing. Gretzky looking, Gary Curry, McSorley to Gretzky! Say I was a Wayne Gretzky fan as a child would be like saying that my brother Chris has a small gap in his teeth. The Oilers were my team, and Wayne was my idol. It's a great game. I didn't do it to make the paper or get on TV. Uh, That wasn't really even sort of the mindset. We just played for fun. When Chris and I played hockey in the basement, I was always Gretzky, and he was always Mike Bossy. Mike Bossy put it in the net and then... Two of the most creative offensive forwards of all time. These guys were our idols. My brother Chris turned into a Norris Trophy winning defenseman in the NHL. Chris Pronger, imposing, feared, and dominant. He won the MVP of the NHL. Not too many D have done that. You know, Bobby Orr. He didn't care about anything except for winning. And that's who you want on your team. And I, well, that's what this story is about. We grew up in Dryden, a small mill town in northwestern Ontario, 400 kilometers east of Winnipeg. At that time, the Jets were still in Winnipeg, and they were in the classic Smythe division. That meant the Edmonton Oilers came to town often to torture the Jets and their fans. One year, we made the journey to the peg, and by chance, or perhaps by stalking, the Prongers were staying in the same hotel as the Oilers. I can still remember sitting in the lobby with Chris, watching the Oilers walk through on their way to breakfast, 
Kevin Lowe walked by and Chris casually said, Hey Kev, as if they were old buddies. Who knew years later they would be buddies? I didn't see Gretzky go through the lobby, so I went over to the restaurant to have a look. And wouldn't you know it, my idol was in fact there. I can still remember Wayne was eating Eggs Benny that day. As I was spying on him, an old man came up to me and said, Hey kid, can you go get Wayne's autograph for my son? Now understand, I didn't want to ask because the great one was eating. On the other hand, of course I asked. If I'd had any brains in my head, I would have gotten one for myself as well. No one ever said I was a genius. Fast forward about 20 years, and wouldn't you know it? I got traded to a New York Rangers team that included none other than the great one. I felt like I was a fantasy camper. Start spreading the news. Looking back, I see that may be one of the reasons my career never took off the way I thought it would. I never felt like I belonged because I was always looking through young Sean's eyes at my great teammates. New York, New York. From November 1998 to February 1999, I was a Ranger and a teammate of Wayne Gretzky. Any chance I got to hang out with him, I did. Although most of the time he had no idea we were hanging out. As a fringe player, you have to keep a positive attitude. No one wants to see a fifth liner complain about ice time. So one night I decided to go blow off a little steam, see what the Big Apple had to offer. The fact that a practice was scheduled for the next day did not weigh into my decision-making one bit. My friend Herbie, my wife, and I found a nice little tavern for a bite and a few carbonated wheat sodas. To the game! Thank God there is still a sport for middle-sized white boys. One led to another, which of course led to another four, and the next thing we knew, my wife and I were strolling home at 4.30 a.m. I think I got to bed around 5 a.m., which was great, because I had to get up at 7 a.m. to drive to the practice rink. I got a solid two hours sleep before the buzzer woke me from my coma. To be honest, I wasn't too worried because I had been practicing on defense the day before. Not a great sign for a forward. I was literally a practice fill-in. Anyway, as I walked through the dressing room, I got the sense that something wasn't right. Wait a second. That's the wrong colored jersey hanging in my stall. Why is it red? You see, in New York, I was a yellow jersey the scrub line color. Red, on the other hand, was for Gretzky, Adam Graves, and Kevin Stevens. I decided someone must be messing with me. I scanned the room to see who was trying to have some fun. Not a person in the room. I grabbed the red jersey and headed into equipment manager Mike Vogelin's office. Folks, you gave me the wrong jersey. No, I didn't, he barked back. You're wearing red today, my friend. Kevin has the flu. Mouth agape, I suddenly realized I'm playing on Gretzky's line today. A million thoughts and questions rushed through my head. What have I done? Why did I stay out so late? Why don't they close the bars earlier? Where's my camera? How hard would young Sean punch me in the face right now? And he'd be right to do so. My first chance to play with the Great One, and I had a bad case of the brown bottle flu. I jumped in the shower and drenched myself in freezing cold water. Time to wake up and get ready to go. Now I know what you're thinking. Slow down, Chris's brother. 
It's not like you're playing the Islanders tonight. This is practice, after all. I know. But you have to understand that for us fifth liners, practice is the game. And when you're playing with Gretzky, it's the all-star game. As the skate loomed closer, I wondered if I should have a talk with Gretz. Just a little chat between first liners to let him know what transpired a few hours earlier. Or maybe I should just suck up to him and lie about my state. I opted to come clean. Gretz, I'm hungover. Maybe even a little drunk still. Can you keep the puck away from me today? I could not believe I was saying this even as the words were coming out of my mouth. Was I really telling the greatest player in the history of the game, not to mention the finest passer ever, to keep the puck away from me? I was, and the great one was great about it. No problem, Prongs. I've been there myself. Wait, did he just call me Prongs? He knows my name? Somehow that one line from Wayne put my mind at ease. Wayne knew my situation, and he had my back. What a guy. I was calm as I got dressed. As I did, I couldn't help but dream that Wayne and I would have some undeniable chemistry together which would force Coach to do the right thing and keep me on the top unit. We'd become as tight as two coats of paint. Right. I could barely contain my grin as we began to wheel around the ice before the drill started. There was a strut in my step and not the Guinness legs I'd expected to be carting around. I had completely shut out the fact that the coaches likely didn't want to mess up the other lines by moving someone up to play on the red line. But as the drills began, every single pass Gretz made was to yours truly. And I'm not talking about those beautiful saucer passes you see in his video, Hockey My Way. I'm talking about wobbly hand grenades that would blow up as soon as they hit my stick. And by the way, I was playing the off wing. That's right, I had to try to catch those bouncing Bettys on my backhand. Thinking the whole episode is my fault, I formulated an apology as I headed back to the line. Sorry, Wayne, was all I could come up with. He said, Prongs, don't worry about it. I'll try to give you better passes from now on. And he delivered the line with a wink. Turns out Wayne thought it would be fun to mess with me from the get-go. How awesome is that? The greatest player ever to lace them up went out of his way to thoroughly embarrass a hungover grinder. And you know what? That made me feel more included than if he had played it straight. And a great story about leadership. And by the way, the character of Wayne Gretzky. And we love getting surprised. A lot of guys would have gotten in the grill of a grinder. And he didn't. He had fun with them. And picked them up, cheered them up, and on to the next thing. And we love to talk about what makes people great. And my goodness, an insight into the greatest of all time. One of the greatest athletes of the 20th century, Wayne Gretzky. This is our American stories. Yeah, he's a Canadian, but he lives in America now, Wayne. And what a great American story. More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib. You're listening to Our American Stories. And you can uh, listen to our segments one at a time in any order you'd like on OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And one of our favorite shows is Shark Tank. And it's great for so many reasons. If you haven't seen it, see it. It's on every Friday night on ABC. It's also on CNBC, and they just run repeats, I don't know, for a couple of nights a week. So it seems to never end. It's almost Shark Tank Network, CNBC. They're actually getting more ratings with Shark Tank at night on CNBC than their combined lineup during the day, actually turning it into sort of a ratings power. And, uh, well, what happens is people come on Shark Tank and they pitch their ideas. And sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not. And in this particular episode, which aired last week, well, a young lady had an idea to pitch. And here was her ingenious idea. Well, it had to do with eyelashes. My name is Mickey Bay. I live in Los Angeles, California, and I'm the CEO at Mickey Bay Eyelash Extensions. Come on in, Milan. I got my start as a celebrity makeup artist to stars like Missy Elliott, Jason Derulo, and Kobe Collette. That's really impressive. Uh, they weren't impressed so far. And then, well, you know, we know what happens next. We got to hear, well, more from the uh, pitcher. I'm seeking $300,000 for 20% of my business. Kim Kardashian West, Beyonce, and J-Lo, you know it's all fake, right? Come on, guys. I'm talking about their eyelashes. But with a little help from me, you too can get that glamorous celebrity look. This poor deluded child thinks she's going to get $300,000 with absolutely no sales or revenue. And that's when, well, a hurting gets put on this poor young lady. A real one. An education, frankly. Sometimes you need to hear the truth. And we know who the truth giver is on Shark Tank. You're telling me that this is worth a million and a half dollars. Yes, sir. What do you do that's worth a million and a half dollars? Let's get serious here because I'm really thinking, What? Well, my revenue in 2012 was $69,000. My revenue in 2013 was $95,000. Nothing wrong with that business, but why is it worth a million and a half dollars? Sure, I'm going to get to it. While we're still alive here. (laughs) Yep, I'm going to take my time. This is my moment. Wow. Oh, yeah, this is your moment. Again, she has about $90,000 in revenue. She's asking for $300,000, and that... That means that she thinks her business is worth a million five. Of course, even my little girl who's 10 years old can do math. This is crazy. By the way, the whole country is learning to learn a little bit about what businesses are worth, how business works. What an education. When did this ever happen before in American history? Well, what happens next? It's not investable. It's very investable. But it's going to take someone who has the vision to see. Here's my prediction for you, Mickey. You are not going to get a deal today on Shark Tank. Okay. And I'm the first to tell you that. And I'm always right. I'm out. This is very important to me because... Here it comes. I have given up everything for this. And eyelash extensions may not sound important to you, but I have people who come and see me. And it makes a difference to them. It gives them more confidence. They feel better about themselves. Well, if we know one thing on Shark Tank, (laughs) as they say... In that great Tom Hanks movie, there's no crying in Shark Tank. Here's what happens next. I'm out, because I see it as a service, not a business. I'm out. You don't need me, so I'm out. I'm out. Thank you. Wow. Everybody was out real fast. First of all, she couldn't add. Second of all, she couldn't take criticism. She was going to cry at the first impact. By the way, if this is one thing we can learn as parents, let's teach our kids to actually, well... Deal with a B or a C or a D. Don't go in and complain to the teacher. The kids have to learn how to deal with criticism or they're going to be unable to compete in life. Well, 
Barbara Corcoran, this woman was a single mom, Barbara Corcoran. Her husband had left her and said, you're never going to amount to anything. And she proved the husband wrong by building one of the biggest real estate empires in New York. And she says precisely because her husband had said you will never amount to anything, she gave this young lady well a talking to. You've got to give up this crying stuff. Okay. The minute a woman cries, you're giving away your power. You have to cry privately. Well, I think it takes a lot of strength to show this type of vulnerability. No, no, no. I understand what you mean. Not in business. I'm sorry. Not in business. I have hired men, women my whole life. When I get a woman who's crying, I refile her in my head in terms of potential because I don't trust her in terms of keeping a cap on her emotion. Wow. And there you have it. Barbara Corcoran teaching this young lady a lesson. But by the way, she's the kind of person who goes out into the hall and says, what does that Barbara Corcoran know? What does she know? Yeah. You know, you, we've met that person in our lives. They just won't, won't listen to anybody, and hopefully someday it, it hits them and they actually figure out some things. But this is why Shark Tank is such a hit show. Again, every Friday night on ABC, we, we love some things in the culture, and we're not going to hammer everything that comes on TV and say, oh, those, those bad, bad people in Hollywood. They make some good product. And when they make some good product, we're going to shine a light on it. And teaching folks about the nature of capitalism, how capital markets work, and the most interesting part of all, that those folks on that stage, Mark Cuban and, and Mr. Wonderful and Barbara Corcoran, they're a member of the 1%. But 20 years ago, they weren't. 20 years ago, they were on the other side of that table, asking people like themselves for money so that they could one day have money so that they can invest in other people. And in this way, Shark Tank is very aspirational. It's very egalitarian, and it's in the end extremely and extraordinarily American. And when we come back, we're going to be talking a bit about, well, actually, I think we should talk about it right now. This is the week and month that we celebrate, if you can celebrate such a thing, infant loss. And that is a bill that Ronald Reagan signed in the 80s, has to do with sudden infant death. Miscarriages, stillborn, and these are deeply grievous moments for women and husbands and families. And there's not enough attention and light paid to it. And so we wanted to hear from each day this week and in the coming weeks, this October, from people who'd suffered from such loss. And that brings us to Jamie Lynn's story. Edward was buried in the morning of October 31st with my maternal grandparents. It was a beautiful ceremony and honored our baby boy in the perfect way. It's been a year and a half since we had Edward, and in that time we have lost two rainbow babies. We got pregnant with baby M, number one, just six months after losing Edward, and we're so excited and nervous to go through nine months of pregnancy. Sadly, at 13 weeks, I went for an ultrasound and the baby did not have heartbeats. I had never miscarried before. The shock was unreal. I was so confused and still grieving Edward that I found the grief for this baby almost unbearable. Baby M's due date has come and gone, and I still wonder if I would be holding a three-month-old boy or girl. Our first try after baby M was a success. Pregnant again, would we lose a third baby? And sadly, yes. At nine weeks, I went for an ultrasound and no heartbeat. That baby's due date was June 20th. Would I be feeling kicks by now? 
My doctor has run every test possible for recurrent miscarriage, and he can't find anything wrong, just bad luck. Edward's PUV is completely unrelated to the miscarriages. Will we try again? Yes. Every moment I have had with all three of the babies I have lost was worth the heartache and grief. I wish I could have had them longer, and having Helena makes me ache for another one. Children are a gift. I thank God every day for making me mom to Edward and the little ones and for helping me through the loss of them. In heaven, we will have quite the family reunion. Until then, my loves, watch over mommy, daddy, and big sister, Helena. Loving you always. Don't turn your head back over your shoulder And only stop to rest yourself when the silver moon This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. We will be back. Our American Stories, and every year around graduation season, we love bringing you commencement speeches from all sorts of speakers. The good, the bad, and boy, we've found a couple of real stinkers, too. And you can't forget those, but boy, we've given you Denzel Washington, and we've given you Steve Jobs, Admiral McRaven, so many good ones. General Pete Paces was a classic. And today we're dropping in on the festivities at Williams College in Massachusetts from back in 2012. Their speaker that day... Dr. Atul Gawande, a surgeon, a writer, and a researcher. And boy, does he have stories to tell because he bumps into a lot of patients. And here is one that he started to talk about almost immediately, a woman who happened to have survived the Holocaust. Mrs. C was 87 years old, a Holocaust survivor from Germany, and she'd come to the emergency room because she'd lost the vision in her left eye suddenly. It tells you something about her that she was at work when this happened in the finance department at Sears. She'd worked her entire life. When her family left Nazi Germany, they narrowly avoided the concentration camps but ended up among 20,000 Jewish refugees relocated to the Shanghai ghetto in Japanese-occupied China. She was a teenage girl and spent eight years there helping her family just to live and survive until liberation in September 1945. She was denied a formal education, so she worked as a seamstress upon admission to the United States. She rose to head seamstress at Bloomingdale's in Chestnut Hill, outside Boston. She married at 23, had two sons, and was widowed at 44. And all the way, she remained in remarkably good health. At 87, 
She still lived independently in a second-floor apartment in Norwood, Mass. She drove a Honda Civic. She did all her own shopping and cooking. And she still worked three and a half days a week at Sears doing office work and her other weekdays volunteering at New England Sinai Rehabilitation Hospital. She was sitting at her desk at Sears when the vision in her left eye went completely black. Came back after three minutes, and so she dismissed the episode. But the next day, the same thing happened again, only this time the vision didn't come back. Her doctor sent her to our emergency room, where she was suspected to have had a stroke caused by a severe atherosclerotic blockage of the carotid artery in her neck. She needed urgent surgery to open that blockage. The operation went well. There were no problems at all. She ended up the next day weak, but she got out of bed. She ate. She felt fine. The day after that, she seemed ready to leave the hospital, but she complained of constipation and that it was making her nauseated and uncomfortable. The team tried various medications, but they did nothing, and her belly only became more painful. A young resident was the one who, looking at her, felt something wasn't right. In fact, this wasn't constipation at all, but a disaster from a strange complication. Her stomach had twisted on itself, pulled up into her chest, and become trapped, a rare condition called gastric volvulus. Worse, an ulcer seemed to have formed in the lining and ruptured into her chest. This is catastrophic for anyone, let alone someone at 87. The textbooks describe an 80% fatality rate. Yet she survived. She, in fact, left the hospital with her son within the week. What a life story and what a lady, Mrs. C. But why was Dr. Gawande telling this story? What about it struck a nerve with the doctor, and why should the William graduates care? When I was nearing the end of medical school, I decided to go into surgery. I had become enthralled by surgeons, especially by their competence. The source of their success, I believed, was their physical skill, their hand-eye coordination and fine motor control. But it wasn't, I learned in my residency training. Getting the physical skills is important, and they take some time to practice and master, but they turn out to be no more difficult to learn than the ones Mrs. C mastered as a seamstress. Instead, the critical skills of the best surgeons I saw involve the ability to handle complexity and uncertainty. They had developed judgment, mastery of teamwork, and willingness to accept responsibility for the consequences of their choices. We all face complexity and uncertainty no matter where our path takes us. That means we all face a risk of failure. In commencement addresses like this one, people always admonish us, take risks, be willing to fail. But I've always been puzzled by that. Do you want a surgeon whose motto is, I like taking risks? (laughs) We do, in fact, want people to take risks to strive for difficult goals, even when the possibility of failure looms. Progress can't happen otherwise. And still, how you do it, how you deal with failure, is what seems to matter. 
The key, it turned out, to reducing death after surgery was the introduction of ways to reduce the risk of things going wrong through specialization, better planning, technology. They've produced a remarkable transformation in the field. Not that long ago, surgery was so inherently dangerous you would only consider it as a last resort. Large numbers of patients developed problems like infections, bleeding, and other deadly problems we euphemistically called complications. Now, surgery's become so safe and routine that most is day surgery. You go home right afterwards. And that's a great point. We tend to take safe surgery for granted these days, but even with all the medical miracles we've witnessed in the last few decades, thanks to the researchers, doctors, and businesses dedicated to healthcare, there are still large differences between individual hospitals in terms of outcomes. And why is that? Some researchers at the University of Michigan discovered the answer recently, and it had a twist I didn't expect. I thought that the best places simply did a better job of controlling and minimizing the risks that they took, that they did a better job of preventing things from going wrong. But to my surprise, they didn't. Their complication rates after surgery were almost the same as others. Instead, what they proved to be great at was rescuing people when they had a complication, preventing failures from becoming catastrophe. Scientists have given a new name to the deaths that occur in surgery after something goes wrong, whether it's an infection or some bizarre twist of the stomach. They call it a failure to rescue. More than anything, this is what distinguished the great from the mediocre. They didn't fail less. They rescued more. This, in fact, may be the real story of human and societal improvement. Risk is necessary. Things can and will go wrong, but some have better capacity to prepare for the possibility, to limit the damage, and to sometimes even retrieve success from failure. When things go wrong, there seem to be three main pitfalls that you need to avoid, three ways to fail to rescue. You could choose a wrong plan, you could choose an inadequate plan, or you could choose no plan at all. Say you're cooking, and you inadvertently set a grease pan on fire. Throwing gasoline on the fire would be a completely wrong plan. (laughs) Trying to blow the fire out would be an inadequate plan. And ignoring it, fire, what fire, would be no plan at all. Whether it's putting out a kitchen fire, performing surgery, running a business, or navigating a marriage, the patterns of failure and rescue are the same. Dr. Gawande brings the story back to Mrs. C where it started and the delicate balance that allows the best doctors to save more patients' lives, even if they make roughly the same number of mistakes as anyone else. Recognizing that your expectations are proving wrong, accepting that you need a new plan, is commonly the hardest thing to do. We have a problem called confidence. To take a risk, you must have confidence in yourself. In surgery, you learn this very early on. You are imperfect. Your knowledge is never complete. Your skills are never infallible. Yet you have to act. You cannot let yourself become paralyzed by fear. Yet you cannot blind yourself to failure either. You have to prepare for it. For strangely enough, Only then is success possible. 
When Mrs. C's abdominal pain turned to catastrophe, for instance, my colleagues were prepared. Now, they weren't prepared for anything so odd as the idea that her stomach would have wound on itself like a balloon twisted too tight. In fact, when the surgical resident told Mrs. C's lead surgeon that he was concerned about the way her abdomen felt on his exam, the surgeon thought he was being alarmist. She'd been doing great the day before. What could go wrong in someone's belly after neck surgery anyway? He'd never seen a serious belly problem in such circumstances. But the surgeon was humble enough to understand that he could. You never know which way trouble can strike. So he listened. He allowed the resident to order the scan he wanted to get. The team made sure it was expedited. When it showed the queer twist, no one dismissed it. They got help from another surgeon immediately. They had her on an operating table within two hours. Nothing went exactly perfectly. There was still a good deal of fumbling around as they tried to sort out what was really going on and what should be done. For time, they hoped for a small, short procedure, just using a scope and avoiding a big operation. And that would have been an inadequate plan. But they avoided the worst mistake, which was to have no plan at all. And so they acted early enough to buy themselves time for trial and error, to figure out the steps required to get her through. They gave her and themselves the chance to rescue success from failure. This is Our American Stories, Dr. Gawande's commencement speech, worth remembering the advances in medical science and how they save lives. His story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.